are back, continuing to celebrate the life and works of the great Tom Wolfe. We like to indulge in this program in a certain amount of social commentary. But when I examine the writings of, of this, this great man, I, I realize that I'm kind of like a little leaguer. A little leaguer admiring an all-star player and wishing he could be more like him. But on the other hand, I can't feel too bad about not having the talent of a Tom Wolf because very few people do. To illustrate that, let me quote from his essay, Mao Mowing the Flat Catchers. Going downtown to Mao Mao the bureaucrats got to be the routine practice in San Francisco. The poverty program encouraged you to go in for Mao Mowing. They wouldn't have known what to do without it. The bureaucrats at City Hall and in the Office of Economic Opportunity talked ghetto all the time. But they didn't know any more about what was going on in the Western Edition, Hunter's Point, Potrero Hill, The Mission, Chinatown, or South of Market Street than they did about Zanzibar. They didn't know where to look. They didn't even know who to ask. So what could they do? Well, they used the Ethnic Catering Service. Right. They sat back and waited for you to come rolling up with your certified angry militants, your guaranteed frustrated ghetto youth looking like a bunch of wild men. Then you had your test confrontation. If you were outrageous enough, if you could shake up the bureaucrats so bad that their eyes froze into ice balls and their mouths twisted up into smiles of sheer physical panic, into SH-eating grins, so to speak, then they knew you were the real goods. They knew you were the right studs to give the poverty grants and community organizing jobs to. Otherwise, they wouldn't know. There was one genius in the art of confrontation who had mao mowing down to what you could term a laboratory science. He had it figured out, so he didn't even have to bring his boys downtown in person. He would just show up with a sack full of revolvers, ice picks, fish knives, switchblades, hatchets, blackjacks, gravity knives, straight razors, hand grenades, blowguns, bazookas, Molotov cocktails, tank rippers, unbelievable stuff, and he'd dump it all out in somebody's shiny walnut conference table. He'd say... These are some of the things I took off my boys last night. I don't know, man. 30 minutes ago, I talked a panther out of busting up a cop. And they would lay money on this man's ghetto youth patrol like it was now or never. Once they hired the ethnic catering service, the bureaucrats felt like it was all real. They'd say to themselves, We've given jobs to hundreds of the toughest hardcore youth in Hunter's Point. The problem is on the way to being solved. They never inquired if the bloods they were giving the jobs to were the same ones who were causing the trouble. They'd say to themselves, we don't have to find them, they find us. Once the ethnic catering service was on the case, they felt like they were reaching all those hard-to-reach, hard-to-hold, hardcore, hardcore, black-rage, badass, furious, funky ghetto youth. He goes on a few pages later. 99% of the time, whites were in no physical danger whatsoever during Mao Maoing. The brothers understood through and through that it was a tactic, a procedure, a game. If you actually hurt or endangered somebody at one of these sessions, you were only cutting yourself off from whatever was being handed out, the jobs, the money, the influence. The idea was to terrify, but don't touch. The term Mao Maoing itself expressed this game-like quality. It expressed the put-on side of it. In public, it used the same term the whites used, namely 
confrontation. The term mau-mauing was a source of amusement in private. The term mau-mauing said, the white man has a voodoo fear of us because deep down he thinks we're savages, right? So we're going to do that savage number for him. It was like a practical joke at the expense of the white man's superstitions. Wolf goes on to describe how, in the midst of all this, there had to be an appearance of a willingness to be violent. But he said, but this was a long way from the notion that all black militants in the ghetto were ready to be violent, to be revolutionaries. They weren't. A lot of whites seemed to think all the angry young men in the ghettos were ready to rise up and follow the Black Panthers at a moment's notice. Actually, the Panthers had a complicated status in the ghettos of San Francisco. You talked to almost any young ace on the street, and he admired the Panthers. He looked up to them. The Panthers were stone courageous. They ripped off the white man and blew his mind and screwed him around like nobody had ever done it, and so on. And yet, as an organization, the Panthers hardly got a toehold in the ghettos of San Francisco, even though their national headquarters were just over the Bay Bridge in Oakland. Whites always seemed to think they had the ghetto's leaders identified and cataloged, and they were always wrong. Like one time in an English class at San Francisco State, there was a teacher who decided to read aloud to the class from Soul on Ice by Eldridge Cleaver. This teacher was a white woman. She was one of those Peter, Paul, and Mary type intellectuals. She didn't wear nylons. She didn't wear makeup. She had bangs and long, straight brown hair down below her shoulders. You see a lot of middle-class white intellectual women like that in California. They had a look that is sort of a pioneer hip or salt-of-the-earth hip with flat-heeled shoes and big, honest calves. Most of the students in her class were middle-class whites. They were the average English literature students. Most of them hadn't even reached the Save the Earth stage, but they dressed revolutionary street fighter. They dressed righteous and with the people. They would have on guerrilla gear that was so righteous that Che Guevara would have had to turn in his beret and get knocked down to company chaplain if he had to come up against it. They would have on berets and their hair down to the shoulders, 1958 Sierra Maestra style, and raggedy field jackets and combat boots and jeans, but not Levi's or Wranglers or any of those tailored hip-hugging jeans, but jeans of the people, the black can't bust them brand, hod carrier jeans that have an emblem on the back of a hairy gorilla, real funky jeans and woolly green socks, the kind that you get at the army surplus store at two pair for 29 cents. It's like the revolution had nostalgia for the proletariat of about 1910. The miners with dirty faces era, because today the oppressed, the hardcore youth in the ghetto, they aren't into the can't bust with the gorilla and the army surplus socks. They're into the James Brown look. They're into the ruffled shirts, the black belted leather pieces from Boyd's on Market Street, the bell cuff herring bones, all that stuff, looking sharp. If you tried to put them in one of those lumpy lumberjack shirts on them, they'd vomit. Anyway, most of the students in this woman's English literature class were white middle class, but there were two or three students from the ghetto. She starts reading aloud from Soul on Ice, and she's deep into it. She's got the whole class into Eldridge Cleaver's cell block in San Quentin, and Cleaver is telling about his spiritual awakening and how he discovered the important revolutionary thinking, and she has a pure, serene tone going. When she finishes, she looks up in the most soulful way with her chin up, and her eyes shining, and she closes the book very softly under her chin, the way a preacher closes the Bible. Naturally, all the white kids are wiped out. They're sitting there looking at each other saying, far out, wow, 
That's heavy. They're shaking their heads and looking very solemn. It's obvious that they just assume that Eldridge Cleaver speaks for all the black people and that what we need is a revolution. That's the only thing that will change this rotten system. In their minds, they're now in the San Francisco state cell block, and the only thing that's going to alter this crap is the big bust out. The teacher lets this all sink in, then she says, I'd like to hear some comments. One of the ghetto brothers raises his hand. She turns to him with the most radiant brotherly smile that the human mind can imagine and says, Yes? And this student, a funky character with electric hair, says, You know what? Ghetto people would laugh if they heard what you just read. That book wasn't written for the ghettos. It was written for the white middle class. They published it and they read it. What is this, having previously dabbled in the themes and writings of Rousseau, Thomas Paine, and Voltaire that he's laying down? You try coming down to Fillmore doing some of this previously dabbling and talking about Albert Camus and James Baldwin. They laugh you off the block. That book was written to give a thrill to white women in Palo Alto and Marin County. That book is the best suburban jive I've ever heard. I don't even think he wrote it. Eldridge Cleaver wouldn't write something like that. I think his wife wrote it. Previously dabbled. I mean, like, don't dabble the people with no previouslys, and don't previous the people with no dabblies. And don't dabble the people with no split-level Palo Alto white bourgeois housewife Buick estate wagon backseat rate fantasies, you know? Says Tom Wolf. as you can see, the man goes completely off his head on the subject. He's saying every outrageous thing that bubbles up into his brain because he wants to blow the minds of the whites in the room. They're all staring at him with congealed faces like they'd just gotten slapped in the back of the neck. They hardly had a chance to get down into the creamy pudding of their romantic black hero trip when this dude comes along and unloads on them. But they don't dare say a word against him because he's hardcore and he has that ghetto patter and he's the one who must know. Anyway, that long essay and its accompanying piece, uh, Radical Chic, took a rather cynical view of that interface between white liberalism and black revolutionary activism. It does make me think that at the bottom of all this, Tom Wolfe never stopped being that fellow from Virginia, even though he went to Yale and lived most of his life in New York. I think I wouldn't be going on a limb to speculate as to whether Tom Wolfe had a bit of a conservative streak. Some years back when we started doing radio programs, I filed away an essay about Tom Wolfe. This dates back to the year 2000. A man named Sven Beekertz, writing in Esquire, took a few pot shots at Mr. Wolfe. He was taking a look at Tom Wolfe's fictional writings, which uh, commenced in the 80s and 90s. And he compared them rather unfavorably to Wolfe's earlier new journalism type pieces, such as the one I was just reading. Said this author, Deft and slicing as Wolfe has been from the first, the essays always wrote on a swell of fond bemusement, which I think is some rather good wordsmithing on the part of Mr. Beekerts. But then he turns a bit nasty in commenting about Wolfe's later work, unfavorably saying whether he is pontificating on the mission of the contemporary novelist or railing against the poisoning of the intellectual well by academic Marxists, the feeling I get is the same, that of being trapped at the dinner table by someone's famous old uncle. The evening started out fine, but now the bottles are drained and he's hammering the air in front of you with the butt of his cigar. That is pretty good. But does he not remind you 
of the work of the man he is criticizing. Let's wind the clock back to 1968 and quote from Tom Wolfe's The Pump House Gang. Actually, that's the title of the book that is a collection of essays. I want to quote from a different essay. In this case, in this case, Tom Wolfe catches up with Marshall McLuhan, who he describes as at a conference table in the upper room in Gossage's advertising firm in San Francisco. The phone rings in Gossage's suite, and it's for McLuhan. It's a man from one of America's largest packing corporations. They want to fly McLuhan to their home office to deliver a series of three talks, one a day, to their top management group. How much would he charge? McLuhan puts his hand over the receiver and explains the situation to Gossage. How much should I charge? What do you usually get for a lecture, says Gossage. $500. Tell him 100000 McLuhan looks appalled. Oh, all right, says Gossage. Tell him 50000 McLuhan hesitates. Then he turns back to the telephone. 50000 Now the man on the phone is appalled. That is somewhat outside the fee structure we generally project, Professor McLuhan. They all call him Professor or Doctor. We don't expect you to prepare any new material, especially for us, you understand, and it will only be three talks. Oh, well then, says McLuhan, 25000 Oh, well then. Great sigh of relief. Well... That is more within our potential structure projection, Professor McLuhan, and we look forward to seeing you. McLuhan hangs up and stares at Gossage nonplussed. But Gossage is already off into the cosmic laugh, bounding, galloping, soaring, eyes ablaze. Masaya, Masaya, just over the next skyline. El Dorado, Marshal, don't you understand? Looking back, says Wolf, I can see that Gossage, but not McLuhan, knew what was going to happen to McLuhan over the next six months. Namely, that this 53-year-old Canadian English teacher, gray as a park pigeon, would suddenly become an international celebrity and the most famous man his country ever produced. And if inspired by our little chat today on Radio Parallax, you intend to go out and read some of Tom Wolfe, I, I would suggest two of his slimmer, tighter pieces of writing, either The Painted Word or From Bauhaus to Our House. And naturally, in the time we have left, I'm going to quote from each one. And in doing so, I just hope the excerpt I'm doing today, you know, does his body of work justice. And saying that, of course, I know that it can't. But I'm going to try. And oddly, in this case, we're continuing along with Marshall McLuhan. Said Tom Wolfe at the beginning of The Painted Word, People don't read the morning newspaper, Marshall McLuhan once said. They slip into it like a warm bath. Too true, Marshall. Imagine being in New York City on the morning of Sunday, April 28, 1974, like I was, slipping into that great public bath, that vat, that spa, that regional physiotherapy tank, that white sulfur springs, that Marinbad, that Ganges, that River Jordan for a million souls, which is the Sunday New York Times. Soon, I was submerged, weightless, Suspended in the tepid depths of the thing in arts and leisure, section 2, page 19, in a state of perfect sensory deprivation, when all at once an extraordinary thing happened. I noticed something. I was jerked alert by the following, which was a review. It was by the Times Dean of the Arts, Hilton Kramer, of an exhibition at Yale University of 
seven realists, seven realistic painters, when I was jerked alert by the following, quote, Realism does not lack its partisans, but it does rather conspicuously lack a persuasive theory. And given the nature of our intellectual commerce with works of art, to lack a persuasive theory is to lack something crucial, the means by which our experience of individual works is joined into our understanding of the values they signify. End quote. Now you may say, my good man, you woke up over that? You forsook your blissful coma over a mere swell in the sea of words? But I knew what I was looking at. I realized that without making the slightest effort, I had come upon one of the utterances in search of which psychoanalysts and the State Department monitors of the Moscow or Belgrade press are willing to endure a lifetime of tedium. The words in passing that give the game away. In chief of the New York Times saying, in looking at painting today, quote, to lack a persuasive theory is to lack something crucial, end quote. I read it again. It didn't say something helpful or enriching or even extremely valuable. No, the word was crucial. In short, frankly, these days, without a theory to go with it, I can't see a painting. There and then, I experienced a flash known as the aha phenomenon, and the buried life of contemporary art was revealed to me for the first time. The fog lifted. The clouds passed. The mole scales, conjunctival bloodshot, and murine agonies fell away. All these years, along with countless kindred souls, I am certain, I'd made my way into the galleries of Upper Manhattan and Lower Soho and the Art Guildo Midway of 57th Street, and into the museums, into the Modern, the Whitney, the Guggenheim, the Bauhaus, the New Brutalist, the Fountainhead Baroque, into the lowliest storefront churches and grandest robber baronial temples of modernism. All these years, I, like so many others, had stood in front of a thousand, two thousand, God knows how many thousand, Pollocks, de Kooning's, Newman's, Nolan's, Rothko's, Judd's, Louise's, Stills, Frankenthaler's, Kelly's, and Frank Stella's now squinting, now popping the eye sockets open, now drawing back, now moving closer, waiting, waiting forever for it. For it to come into focus, namely the visual reward, which must be there. All these years, in short, I had assumed that in art, if nowhere else, seeing is believing. Well, how very short-sighted. Now at last, on April 28, 1974, I could see. I had gotten it backwards all along. Not seeing is believing, you ninny, but believing is seeing. For modern art has become complex literary. The paintings and other works exist only to illustrate the text. And at that point, Mr. Wolf is off and running. A chapter or two later, he notes the following. Modern art enjoyed a tremendous social boom in Europe in the 1920s. And what about the United States? A painter, Marsden Hartley, wrote in 1921 that art in America is like patent medicine or a vacuum cleaner. It can hope for no success until 90 million people know what it is. Bitter stuff. In fact, however, he couldn't have gotten it more precisely wrong. Modern art was a success in the United States in no time, as soon as a very few people knew what it was. The 400, as it were, as opposed to the 90 million. 
These were the New Yorkers of wealth and fashion, such as the Rockefellers and the Goodyears, who saw their counterparts in London enjoying the chic and excitement of Picasso, Matisse, and the rest of Le Moderne, who wanted to import it for themselves. This they did. Modern art arrived in the United States in the 1920s, not like a rebel commando force, but like standard oil. By 1929, it had been established, institutionalized in the most overwhelming way, in the form of the Museum of Modern Art. This cathedral of culture was not exactly the brainchild of visionary bohemians. It was founded in John D. Rockefeller Jr.'s living room, to be exact, with Goodyear's, Blisses, and Crowen Shields in attendance. By the mid-1930s, modern art was already so chic that corporations held it aloft like a flag to show they were both up-to-date and enlightened. The Dole Pineapple Company sent Georgia O'Keeffe and Isamu Noguchi to Hawaii to record their impressions. And the Container Corporation of America was commissioning abstract works by Ferdinand Leger, Henry Moore, and others. This led to the Container Corporation's long-running advertising campaign, the Great Ideas of Western Man series, in which it would run a great idea by a noted savant at the top of the page, one of them being, Hitch Your Wagon to a Star, Ralph Waldo Emerson. Underneath would be a picture of a Cubist horse strangling on a banana. And I'm going to jump ship at this point to our final selection of the day. Tom Wolfe's From Bauhaus to Our House, wherein he took his jaundiced eye off the world of modern art and focused it instead on architecture. Tom Wolfe says, Our story begins in Germany just after the First World War. Young American architects, along with artists, writers, and odd lot intellectuals, are roaming through Europe. This great boho adventure is called The Lost Generation. Wolf describes how Americans joined the flock of people traveling through Europe in this era, being dazzled by the artists they found there, and also the architects. Said Wolf to the young American architects who made the pilgrimage, the most dazzling figure of all was Walter Gropius, founder of the Bauhaus School. Gropius opened the Bauhaus in Weimar, the German capital, in 1919. It was more than a school. It was a commune, a spiritual movement, a radical approach to art in all its forms. He further notes the Bauhaus style was preceded from certain assumptions. First, the new architecture was being created for the workers the holiest of all goals, perfect worker housing. Second, the new architecture was to reject all things bourgeois. Since just about everyone involved, the architects, as well as the social democratic bureaucrats, was himself bourgeois in the literal social sense of the word, bourgeois became an epithet that meant whatever you wanted it to mean. It referred to whatever you didn't like in the lives of people above the level of a hod carrier. He notes a little later, the battle to be the least bourgeois of all became somewhat loony. For example, early in the game, in 1919, Gropius had been in favor of bringing simple craftsmen into the Bauhaus. Yeomen, honest toilers, people with knit brows and broad fingernails, who would make things by hand for architectural interiors. Simple wooden furniture, simple pots and glassware, simple this and simple that. This seemed very working class, very non-bourgeois. He was also interested in the curvilinear designs of expressionist architects. In 1922, the first International Congress of Progressive Art was held in Dusseldorf. This was the first meeting of compound architects from all over Europe. 
Right away, they got down on the mat over this business of non-bourgeois. Theo von Dosenberg, the fiercest of the Dutch manifesto writers, took one look at Gropius's honest toilers and expressionist curves and sneered and said, How very bourgeois! Only the rich could afford handmade objects. To be non-bourgeois, art must be machine-made. As for expressionism, its curvilinear shapes were not only expensive to fabricate, they were voluptuous and luxurious. Van Dozenberg, with his monocle and long nose and his amazing sneer, could make such qualities sound bourgeois to the point of queasiness. Gropius was a spiritual force, but he was also quick enough and competitive enough to see that Van Dozenberg was backing him into a dreadful corner. Overnight, Gropius dreamed up a new motto, Art and Technology, a new unity. Honest toilers, broad fingernails, and curves disappeared from the Bauhaus forever. But that was only the start. The definitions and claims and accusations and counter-accusations and counter-claims and counter-definitions of what was or was not bourgeois became so refined, so rarefied, so arcane, so dialectical, so scholastic, that finally, building design itself was directed at only one thing. Illustrating this month's theory of the century concerning what was ultimately, infinitely, and absolutely non-bourgeois. The buildings became theories constructed in the form of concrete, steel, wood, glass, and stucco. Henceforth, white, beige, gray, and black became the patriotic colors, the geometric flag of all the compound architects. So goodbye color. And functional became one of the several euphemisms for non-bourgeois. For example, there was a now inviolable theory of the flat roof and the sheer facade. It had been decided in the battle of the theories that pitched roofs and cornices represented the crowns of the old nobility, which the bourgeois spent most of its time imitating. Therefore, henceforth, there would be only flat roofs, flat roofs making clean right angles with the building facades, no cornices, no overhanging eaves. These young architects were working and building in cities like Berlin, Weimar, Rotterdam, Amsterdam, about the 52nd parallel, which also runs through Canada, the Aleutian Islands, Moscow, and Siberia. As this swath of the globe, with enough snow and rain to stop an army, as history has shown more than once, there was no such thing as a functional flat roof and a functional facade with no overhang. In fact, it is difficult to imagine where such a building might be considered functional outside the painted desert. As you might imagine, my dear listener, this stuff managed to catch on just the same. I thought of that passage when many years later I constructed a, uh, a deck that was just a little too much like a flat roof. Like all flat roofs, it was almost impossible to stop it from leaking. But for our final item of the day, we go to chapter three, where it was noted that in the wake of the rumblings in Nazi Germany in the 1930s, Walter Gropius and the other stars of his famous Bauhaus arrived in the United States. In our final quote from Tom Wolfe, we have this. The reception of Gropius and his confreres was like a certain stock scene from the jungle movies of that period. Bruce Cabot and Myrna Loy make a crash landing in the jungle and crawl out of the wreckage of their in their Abercrombie and Fitch white safari blouses and tan gabardine jodhpurs and stagger into a clearing. They're surrounded by savages with bones through their noses who immediately bow down and prostrate themselves and commence a strange moaning chant. 
the white gods come from the skies at last. Gropius was made head of the School of Architecture at Harvard. Mohali Negi opened the new Bauhaus, which evolved into the Chicago Institute for Design. Mies was installed as Dean of Architecture at the Armour Institute in Chicago. And not just Dean, Master Builder also. Wolf describes how in architecture, naturally Gropius the Silver Prince became the chief executive, the governor of the colony, as it were. The teaching of architecture at Harvard was transformed overnight. Everyone started from zero. Everyone now t- was now taught in the fundamentals of the international, which is to say, the compound style. All architecture became non-bourgeois architecture, although the concept itself was left discreetly unexpressed, as it were. And there's so much more I'd like to quote from, but I'm out of time. I hope in some manner I did justice to the works of Mr. Tom Wolfe, or at the very least inspired at least some of you to pick up his works and read them. I fear we shall not see his like again for, well, some time. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You have been listening to Radio Parallax. We set aside a lot of material for this special edition today, which we will bring you next week. I am Douglas Everett, and I look forward to speaking to you again a week from now.